This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Obviously, the number one story this morning is uh, in uh, New York City, where uh, NYPD are investigating an explosion this morning in a Manhattan subway platform. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Ross McLean, crime specialist and security expert, of course, for a former Toronto police officer. And uh, Ross, first of all, thanks so much for the time. Busy morning for you. I appreciate you taking some time for us today. Yeah, Bill, this story is rapidly developing, rapidly developing, and uh, we're getting some good information out quickly. Well, wh- what do we know so far? Well, what we have is an explosion took place at the busiest bus terminal in New York City. There are over 250,000 people a day go through there. Not far away from where, the, uh, of course, the car attack took place, uh, the truck attack, not too long ago. Yeah, those that know New York know that this is really just a couple of blocks away from Times Square. Absolutely. The area is going to be covered, absolutely covered with CCTV and New York Counterterrorism Police. But what we appear to have is at this point uh, a lone suspect uh, walking into the, into the subway through the tunnels with a, with a device on him that apparently exploded, apparently exploded prematurely. He's in custody, alive. He's identified. Uh, he's the only one who's badly injured at this point. And police are starting to unravel and figure out uh, what was behind all this. Now, you just posted a picture on social media that uh, you got, I guess, from one of the New York papers about the suspect? Yeah, there's a picture of him. What you can clearly see from this picture is you can see sort of a Velcro belt that was uh, put around his waist that was used to secure this device uh, that would have been on him. You can certainly see wounds to his uh, belly. His face is uh, aimed down into the ground, and he's wearing um, some khaki pants. So, you know, my suspicion here is, is, Bill, is that this was a bomb that was intended to go off, uh, likely inside of, a, uh, inside of a bus or a subway car or a very contained area. But it appears there's actually some video that's circulating of the bomb going off. It appears that the bomb detonated prematurely and incorrectly. So what happens with these type of bombs, and this is what the police are going to be investigating, exactly how it was made, the the stuff used, that'll fingerprint the bomb and help them to point to how and where this could have been built and who may have helped. But generally speaking, some of these uh, low-grade, low-tech bombers, they use a a very volatile form of explosive that's made from commonly bought chemicals that can be used. And they will uh, use that, they will line that with ball bearings that when it explodes, if it explodes correctly, will send the ball bearings out and that will cause a lot of death and injury for doing it. In this case, it appears that just the explosives went off, uh, lit him up in flames more or less, without apparently spreading um, the ball bearing. So thankfully, it looks like no major loss of life in this attack. Any uh, reports of anybody else injured besides the alleged bomber? Uh, no reports of major injuries, but I have no doubt from looking at the the copies of the video that's circulating of it that some people will have perhaps some sort of uh, superficial burns or or perhaps people could have fallen trying to run away or, or that sort of thing. We should put this in perspective. Uh, and again, for those that may not be familiar with uh, Manhattan, downtown Manhattan, Monday morning rush hour, uh, you mentioned this was at the bus terminal. It's the, the Port Authority bus terminal, which is really just a couple of blocks uh, east of Times Square. Uh, but there are linkages from that bus terminal to the subway systems. What if I can get right off a bus uh, into New York City and get right on a subway at that very building? So the potential for massive uh, injury or death here is is really huge, uh, given the number of people that were available and around at that time. Yeah, one of the things that they try to do with, this is going to be the bomb forensics, but what you try to do, 
uh, when they're setting them off, you try to do them in as contained as area as possible, so such as a subway car, because what that will do, that'll increase the concussive problems uh, that come from the bomb. It increases it. If, if you do it in an open field, it's not the same because all the energy just dissipates as opposed to being held. But I, I think it's going to be interesting here and in that the police know who this guy is. Uh, apparently, originally reported 37. Now I'm seeing a report he was a 27-year-old man uh, from Bangladesh, been here seven years, according to the former New York uh, police commissioner, Bratton, who reports this. And uh, Bangladesh has been known as an area for training for ISIS-type uh, people. They've got their own terror area uh, problems with bombs there going off and and suicide bombers. So there'll, there'll be some looking into this background. Right now, places all over Brooklyn and anything associated with man are going to be descended upon by the FBI and the NYPD. Now, Ross, you've talked about this and written about it on your webpage uh, in, in the past uh, about other bombings and potential bombings and situations like this. And there's an interesting uh, common thread that you've talked about in the past, and that's oftentimes when there is a lone bomber, and this appears to be a, a suicide bomber, or that seemed to be the intent anyway, that oftentimes they're not acting alone, that there could be somebody else that might even be in the proximity to that uh, as a backup, and, and obviously other people in the network. I would assume that's maybe where this investigation is going now? Yeah, it's one of the things the police have to be careful of when you descend upon uh, a terror-type attack, is that there could be that could be an attack to lure people and into a second attack. But what we have seen in the past, I mean, because you look at patterns, these people learn how to do these things. So you have a bomber who could be a basically a dupe, but you also need someone who can make the bomb. And, you know, what, what you find out is there's accomplices that are usually with them. Quite often, there'll be someone with them who goes to ensure that they're doing and that they're doing the blowing up of the bomb with the vest. Often, we've actually seen in Europe where there's been two suicide bombers uh, at the same time going together, presumably so one will push it if the other one doesn't, as sort of a backup device for doing it. There's reports that there were some wires on this bomb as well, uh, whether that was tied to a cell phone that could be used by a detonator remotely by someone, we don't know. That's still to be uh, developed. But it's certainly hitting the pattern of what looks like a classic uh, suicide uh, terrorist bombing bill. So this is a multi-pronged approach at this stage as far as authorities are concerned. And, and since this is a bombing, obviously NYPD are involved in the investigation. But I would imagine this goes right up through to the FBI as well, since uh, there's a concern here about terrorist activity. As soon as it's determined to be a terror activity, the FBI takes over, and they're the lead agency uh, for dealing with any terror uh, attacks. So they'll be on top of this. They'll be looking at, right now, hitting his home, looking at his computer devices. And, you know, I just suspect at this point what we're going to find is somewhere, Bill, and maybe I'm being a little bit uh, just jaded at this point, there's going to be a home where he lived with a family and a wife and kids and no one thought he was bad and everything's okay and we're sort of surprised this happened. We've never seen anything strange out of him before. That's sort of what we've heard before. Uh, but the police will be looking into all of the forensic uh, stuff that comes out of that from cell phone, social media, contacts, library books, he's take anything. They they will find out about this man. Um I'll uh, just say one other little thing I'm looking at here. I always like to talk more as an investigator than as a law enforcement person, because mm -hmm. law enforcement, you can only say what you positively know and can stand up in court and not be used to impeach you. But as, as an investigator, we just saw yesterday in, um, in Israel, uh, a security officer was stabbed at a bus terminal in Israel with someone who was going, and that was done in the name of ISIS as well. Today we have a, an attack at a bus terminal uh, in New York City. So I'm wondering if the word has gone out uh, to uh, go attack bus terminals for doing that. I should hope that 
everybody would be tightening up their security at bus terminals at this point and keeping an eye open. Well, how does how do authorities respond in situations like this? Because you saw some of the chatter on social media late last week, Ross, after the, the Trump announcement. And, I mean, we've seen the, 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 the response to that, of course, in Jerusalem and other cities in the Middle East. But there was some concern in social media in some circles that, watch out, uh, that may just act as a lever and a, and a switch for people over on this side of the ocean to start responding to it as well. Uh, is, is there a concern now? Is there heightened security at places like bus terminals, etc., because of that, anticipating that there could be more damage and, and more attempts? Well, there's going to have to be. As, as, you, as you've seen over the last number of days around the world, there's been all the uh, usual suspect protest groups have come out to protest at U.S. embassies over the uh, president's naming of Jerusalem as, as being the capital of Israel. So there's certainly a network. They, they activate, they operate in different cities, uh, and that does that go down to a terror network? Absolutely, it can, and it does. And w- what happens here, and I've been dealing with the police just this, over this past week on, on issues similar to this one, talking about them. What happens, Bill, is the police end up, guess what? Everybody's days off gets canceled, no time off, little vacation, doubling up on shifts. Uh, police have to use whatever resources they have, and the best way they can use them is by doubling them up and putting them places. So... Uh, this terror certainly puts a lot of strain on police forces. Well, and you got to ask yourself, I mean, how much can they actually do in, in the way of being preventative in situations like this? Uh, you know, I mean, we were just at, uh, at Union Station a couple of days ago. Last, well, for the Grey Cup, we drove, you know, took the train up to Ottawa. And we were just looking at the enormity of that. And that's, that's you know, a, a major, uh, you know, commuter station every day. And you figure you can walk in and out of there pretty much unseen by just about anybody right now. And New York City, Chicago, I mean, you name it, there are places all over the place like this. It's, it's got to be frustrating for authorities to try to keep an eye on what's happening and who's doing it. Well, if you don't have, if all you have is a target that you're protecting, that you know is a high-profile target, and you've got no intelligence, you're absolutely right. I mean, what are you going to do in New York City? You're going to check, frisk everybody who tries to get on and off a bus? to go somewhere, put them through a metal detector. If you don't have any intelligence, you can't do anything. What the police really need to rely on, uh, and our country is no different, is intelligence. Uh, intelligence to identify these people uh, so that what you can do is you can find those, that few little one percenters of the ones that are out there that are willing to cause death and terror like this. Uh, you know, So this is the sort of thing. We certainly have the discussion going on now with the returned ISIS terrorists coming back to Canada. We'll find out if this man here had a history of being involved in any terrorism when he was over in Bangladesh. If so, how did he get in? How was he cleared? These are the sort of things you have to look at. You really have to rely on intelligence to try and get them, because investigating after the bomb goes off is tragic, but in this case, it went off poorly. So the better off, and he's still alive, so let's hope they can get some more info out of him. Did you get any sense uh, from the information you've been able to gather so far? I mean, you mentioned that the, the authorities know who this guy is. Uh, is that simply because he had identification with him, or was he, as the phrase is, known to authorities? Well, we'll, we'll wait to hear that. Uh, I would like to think known to authorities. That's what I would like to think. But the question becomes, how do you deal with these people who are known to authorities? You know, you know, the issue here, Bill, is when it comes to people who are willing to do uh, terrorist acts, you just don't wake up one day and decide to do a terrorist act. You have to get training. You have to be psyched to do it. You have to become radicalized. You have to believe that this is the way, the best way to resolve the problem. There's a reward for it. There's, there's work that goes into developing these people to do this. So it's, there's a network that's tied to this. 
Uh, obviously, there's people who are coming and relocating. This is someone else we've seen come from another country in the last 10 years into the U.S. to uh, create terror. So it's the exporting of terror from some of these uh, more dangerous countries that are certainly the concern, because that's how you can get the people there. Uh, we know that uh, as a result of this, that uh, the authorities in New York now, of course, have, well, first, obviously, the the, the Port Authority uh, bus station is now off limits to everybody. Uh, apparently, they're rerouting subways away from that area now. Uh, but I would imagine everybody's on heightened security right around the Big Apple, just about every place where people are going to gather, including Times Square and just about anywhere else. Well, for, further threats have been put out by ISIS, saying they want to cause problems at uh, Christmas and New Year's Eve, and, and one terror intelligence person I spoke to told me last week that, yeah, well, they put those out every year, which they do, but they unfortunately seem to have takers that want to take up on this sort of thing. So uh, the best we can hope for here is that our intelligence uh, authorities are working and they've got the resources they need. They've got the uh, persons that they need to be able to follow up on these leads. And then we need to be able to act on them. I mean, uh, there's if you have somebody who has fought in a war zone, who has tasted blood, uh, who has learned and trained how to put these devices together and sees it as being a noble cause. I, I just don't know how we allow them to uh, to run about in our in our various countries. It's it's just too dangerous. Well, we'll find out more. I guess there's going to be a press conference. I guess in about an hour or so. We're told, and the governor and the mayor of New York will be there, and and certainly I would imagine members of the NYPD and the FBI. Uh, and and we're always interested to get some of the details and background on these uh, circumstances when they happen. Uh, about whether or not the five eyes, you know, those that are listening in on, on chatter from uh, ledge sources uh, are aware of who this individual was and, and who they may be associated with. So still a lot to learn here, isn't there, Ross? There's, there's a lot to learn. You know, what I'm really concerned about is I want to see police have the intelligence resources that they need to be able to find and deal with these issues. But there's also concerns on the other avenue about intelligence resources being used improperly, political reasons, leaks and things like this. You know, so we need to, uh, you know, get proper control and uh, use our intelligence sources in an intelligent way to protect our communities and, uh, and our way of life. Absolutely. Ross, thanks so much for the update on this. Really, uh, greatly appreciated. Thank you, Bill. There'll be more information coming out very shortly, I'm sure. You betcha. Thanks again. Sure. Uh, you can, by the way, go to Ross's website, rossmcclainsecurity.com, and uh, he's got some of the, uh, the videos and pictures that are posted, including apparently the moment the explosion happened at uh, the bus station in New York City. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. City Councilor's got a, a rather bleak picture about the homeless situation in, in this city and, of course, with the weather forecast that we just talked about here with winter coming. I mean, we've had chilly weather for the last number of weeks, but uh, some snow on top of that. There are folks that are going to be looking for some kind of shelter. Well, there's not a whole lot available. Now, the city does have a plan to try to deal with people. Uh, the homeless shelters are just about full of capacity right now. There is a plan B, but it's a rather expensive one, and the city is looking for alternatives. Joining us to talk about this is Chad Collins, city councilor for Ward 5, who's uh, spent a good deal of his political career uh, dealing with the housing issue here in the city. Chad, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing all right, Bill. Yourself? Good, good. Let's talk a little bit about the circumstance that uh, we're dealing with here right now. And before we get into the housing aspect of this, let's talk about the plan that the city has in place uh, to deal with homeless folks with shelters and, and in case those shelters are full, which seems to be the case now. Well, the shelter program is uh, one that is funded in large part by the province. And uh, we're, you know, when, when shelters are full, um, the plan B in many cases is to find a temporary accommodation, and that traditionally means um, hotels. And so, uh, as I think the uh, article recently in CBC pointed out, 
Um, you know, we're spending $450,000 in 2017 on hotel stays, and this is for families. And uh, that's uh, double uh, what we spent in 2016, and I think it's almost six times what we spent in 2012. And so this situation continues to get worse, and it's a direct result of the prosperity we're seeing in the city. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing rising real estate prices, which is uh, a, a certainly a, a benefit to those people who own their own home and are thinking of selling soon. And, of course, we're seeing uh, record development permits in the city as well. And so with that, there are certainly those people who come out on top, and uh, other people are squeezed by that situation because rising real estate prices oftentimes mean rising rents. And uh, at times, it, you know, um, th- that means that some either can't afford it or when those rental rates rise, it's hard to find um, uh, vacant apartment units uh, anywhere in the city. And, and that's the circumstance we're in right now. Now, we've talked about uh, using hotels uh, for, for New Hamiltonians in the past. Of course, when uh, those uh, the Syrian refugees came into town, uh, mm-hmm. I know a number of them stayed in, in some of the hotels for a period of time. And uh, the last I heard, in uh, uh, way of an update, there's most of them actually been assimilated into the community. They found housing someplace, mm-hmm. which is a great news story. But this is a different circumstance uh, because as those people, you know, got assistance and, of course, found jobs, et cetera, they, they could say, okay, now we can afford to, to find a place. These are families right now that say, look, it's not going to change anytime soon. We just don't have the money to, and there's nothing out there for us right now. That's right. And, and the housing wait list right now, Bill, is currently over 6,200 individuals and families. And uh, and that just highlights and, and underscores the need for new affordable housing units. All right. Now, if somebody new goes on that list today, how long does it take before they can actually find accommodation? Well, We're depends. talking years, I guess, are we? Absolutely. It depends how many locations the individual or family has chosen. And the more locations you add to your list, the quicker you'll find um, a housing unit. We're seeing on average, I believe, the, and I'm going from memory here, it might be three to five years in terms of how long it might take someone to put their name on the list and then find an affordable unit in the city. And we're hoping that situation changes. As you know, you've covered it extensively. Uh, Council um, made a a historic decision this term by investing $50 million over 10 years into new affordable housing units. You know, the issue we face, though, is that even with that investment and even with the investments from the province and the federal government, it takes years in many cases to build these new apartment units or townhomes to accommodate those that are on the list. And so between now and the time that shovels are in the ground and those units are open, you know, we find families that are squeezed by these rising rents and, uh, and scarcity of affordable rental housing units. And, and that's where the, in this case, the hotel uh, accommodation comes into play. But again, that's supposed to be a short-term solution, but it looks like it's turning into a, a longer-term solution, and that's a rather expensive one. It is, and, and I think that's why Council has not only made the investment, uh, we've been advocating for uh, a change in policy from the province and the feds, and, and they've responded, uh, to be clear. I believe the province just uh, allowed um, for victims of domestic violence. Uh, they've changed the policy now, and I, I believe there will be supplements uh for women who are in that situation. And of course, um, you know, we have our own rent supplement system here in the city. And and what that does is it offsets the cost of, of someone's affordable unit. So it's not a strict RGI. Uh, it's a, a contribution that the city makes to offset the rising costs and rents. And, you know, we, we've seen rental rates, um, and I think it was highlighted, highlighted in the article, we've seen double-digit increases in rental rates. So, you know, individuals are looking at 10, 12, 14% increases year over year. That's not certainly for someone who has a signed lease. Um, you know, there are provincial regulations in place that protect them, 
But for an individual that's looking for a vacant apartment, an apartment that might have been $900 just a year ago, you know, is now going for $1,050 or $1,100. And it highlights the fact that, um, you know, it really is a seller's market right now. Landlords are doing quite well, and tenants are the ones that are feeling the squeeze. There's another phenomenon that seems to be occurring here, and I, I don't know if there's substantial evidence to, to show just what the numbers might be here, but uh, it, it seems as if an awful lot of people are coming to Hamilton uh, looking for housing right now. Why is that going on? Well, you know, just as we're experiencing prosperity here, Toronto is experiencing the same, and, and you know, you've read certainly what's happening in the GTA market with real estate prices. In fact, that led to the, the province implementing, uh, you know, new um new rules as it relates to mortgages and, uh, and home purchases. And that certainly cooled the market. But we're, what we're finding, and, and I think we've seen this historically, as people uh, you know, can't afford uh, higher rents in the GTA and in the Halton region, you know, they're finding their way to Hamilton. So as, for as much as we're seeing record rental rates here, they're certainly not as high as they are in some other places in the GTA. And, and what that does, Bill, is it... it um, you know, those people are taking up units that uh, Hamiltonians certainly would have been looking for and renting a, a year or two ago, and they're also adding to the wait list. So when I referenced that 6,200 on the wait list right now, it was just a few, uh, sorry, a few short years ago where that was we were in the 3,000 number on the wait list. And so people are migrating to Hamilton, uh, and that also includes certainly newcomers to Canada who are making can- who are making Hamilton their home. So the combination of those two are 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 creating issues as it relates and pressures on the affordable housing wait list, and it's creating an issue as it relates to vacant units. Yeah, I've seen some reports that indicate that uh, actually some refugees, including, uh, well, we saw the stories about people that were crossing the border into Quebec and, and into That's Manitoba. Right. Uh, some of them have migrated over to Hamilton because they've gone to, to Montreal and to Toronto or other cities and found they can't afford to live there. And uh, bingo, they're here. It's not unlike that story that uh, council had to deal with, uh, I guess, about 15, 20 years ago, where a number of people that were on social assistance mm-hmm. uh, could no longer afford Toronto and simply got on a bus and came here and said, okay, you guys, can you look after me now? Absolutely. And, and that creates local pressures. And that, that wait list continues to get longer. And I think it was one of the impetuses for the, for the investment that we've made, the $50 million. And to be clear, there are, just at the city of Hamilton, we have six or seven different affordable housing unit projects on the horizon of course, we're just in the final stages of vacating 500 McNabb. I think we have six residents left in that large building uh, at the foot of James Street North. Um, Jamesville is uh, is out to, uh, I believe, through the RFP process right now. Uh, Councillor Jackson's working on another building at Macassa. I'm looking at one in Riverdale. And I know that we have a number of other issues, including Councillor Marula's um, City Motor Hotel site that we're in negotiations with right now to purchase at City Housing. So those are just the city housing projects that are on the horizon. You've covered Indwell and all the good work that they're doing. And, of course, all the other providers like Vic Park, Good, she- good Shepherd, and others will be, um, you know, they'll be a part of council's investment as well as the federal and provincial dollars that are going to flow for new affordable housing projects. So there's, you know, there seems to be light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, but, you know, those days can't come soon enough when we, when we cut the ribbon and, and give the keys to affordable housing people who are on the wait list right now, there's just tremendous need. And, and I really don't see that subsiding anytime soon, unfortunately. Though. But you guys were faced with a very stark reality here, though, Chad. And I remember you t- coming on the program when, when council mm-hmm. did move forward with the money, the $50 million. And mm-hmm. that's, that's a big number, to be sure. But then you say, okay, now where we have to spend it? It's not all on new projects. You've got some fix-ups that you have to set. That's going to cost a considerable amount of money as well. 
absolutely, and 20 million of that 50 uh, will will go towards um, renovating uh, some of the units that we have currently. And, and the average age of some of the city housing units, if I could use our 7,000 units as an example, you know, the average age of many of those units, whether they be apartments, towns, or singles and semis, you know, they're, they're at the 40, 45-year mark. And so many of the major building components are past their useful lifespan. You know, we're looking at roofs that need to be replaced, elevators, windows. Um, and, and so that $20 million that's been earmarked for maintenance will uh, ensure that the quality of living for those people who we currently house um, is improved. And as I've mentioned before, and you've covered it, uh, you know, some of the units across the city, not just city housing, but other providers probably couldn't pass a property standards test if we had our, our inspectors go through it. So that, that shows you that we're in a crisis situation. We're not alone. Toronto's in uh, worse shape than, than we are, and some of the major urban centres across Canada face the same dilemma. And, um, you know, we, we start to see units, dozens, if not hundreds, when you look at Toronto, that are left vacant because they're so far gone that they're, they're, they're not habitable. And, and so we're, we're, we face that situation. I think that's why the feds have come forward with a national housing strategy and resources to match. Um, we're, we're just at the point where something's got to give, and that means resources, not just for new units, but to, to fix those up that are, are well past um, you know, their, their best before date. And you've got to make that determination as to which ones you can ha- really fix up. I mean, you mentioned the ones at Macassa. I, I mean, I grew up around the corner from that area, and uh, that, that, that's, those things are over 50 years old. I would imagine it's going to take a considerable amount of money to bring those up to standards. Absolutely, and you'll start to see more uh, you know, you've covered the Jamesville situation. And so, you know, those units, I think, were built in the mid-60s, maybe early 60s. And we're at the stage right now where we find some of our properties sit on very valuable land. And and what we'll look at is completely redeveloping. Instead of just, um, you know, fixing them up and replacing those major components, we'll look at higher densities where those, those properties will yield more units for us. It, it saves us money because we're not out looking for, for vacant land in a market that's still very hot, where land is very expensive. It allows us to utilize our current inventory of properties. And on the Jamesville site in particular, uh, right now I think we have about 96 townhouses on that site. We'll probably see triple that number of units with a private sector partner at some point in time in 2018. That announcement will be made in terms of you know, what the project will look like. But those are some of the creative things that housing providers are going to be forced to do over the next number of years as uh, we see uh, housing prices increase, not just in the GTA, but in the Hamilton region, and, and we're forced to, to you know, do more with less. But with prices being the way they are, this is great news, I guess, if you're a developer right now, because you can throw something up and you know that it's going to get sold in, in, not too, you know, in a pretty timely fashion. But the downside to that is how much pressure is the city right now finding in trying to find private sector partners to uh, to, to be in, get into the affordable housing project? I mean, they can build themselves a condo for a lot more money and probably get a bigger return on that right now. That's got to be pretty tempting. Yeah, and they're, and they're looking for incentives, and so we do have incentive programs, and, and that's something that we're going to talk about this budget session in terms of you know, what incentives do we provide developers in order to get into the affordable housing market. And, and that may mean development charge uh, waivers. That may mean, um, you know, uh, we're, we're looking at uh, property tax waivers in some cases for not-for-profits and, and city housing units. We already made that decision last year for city housing units. And so those, those development carrots, so to speak, encourage private developers to think beyond just building strict uh, condos or, or rental units. And be clear, there haven't been a lot of rental units 
constructed in the city in the last number of years. But but those are the types of things that not just Hamilton but other municipalities are looking at. And the province, to be to be fair, has um, has allowed us to do those things recently. That you know just just a few short years ago, those things would have been considered bonusing. But the province sees the need in order for the, that the private sector needs to get into the game. It, it means that there's more units available, and it means that we're looking at mixed housing developments. It's not just everyone in the same lot. Uh, you know, when I was a boy in, in the mid-70s and lived in Oriel Crescent, everyone was on assistance. Everyone had the same lot in life. There was one economic class, and now we're looking at a mix. We're looking at a 70-30 mix between those people who might be paying market rent, who might be owning their own condos, living alongside those people who are on assistance, which is a good model that's worked not just in Hamilton but elsewhere in the world. So the city's got a plan, and that's good news, and you've got funding, and that's even better news. But but what about the short-term solutions right now where you're looking at uh, this money that's going into hotels? Uh, and I, I'm just trying to connect the dots here, and I know that mm-hmm. invariably when we have this discussion, Chad, we start looking at, at the possibility of using vacant buildings. Now, you've developed some pretty good relationships, for instance, with the Board of Education over the last number mm-hmm. of years. They have some properties that they're not using right now. Has there been any discussion about using some of that space, at least on a short-term basis, uh, for shelters or perhaps for housing? Well, we're looking at right now community hubs, and so I know the McDonald site's been talked about extensively with the board. Uh, They're also allowing us to look at Riverdale Recreation Center as an example, and so we're in the process of expanding the rec center on school board lands, and we're we're going to be applying to the provincial ministry to ask whether or not they'll they'll allow us to build housing units on top of our recreation center that sits on school board lands. And so we're looking at some very unique models um, that would be, I think, a first in this region as it relates to a recreation center, a school, and affordable housing units all on the same site. Um, unfortunately, you know, between now and the time that some of those approvals come from the province or they make their way through the city's planning process, we're forced to, to really live with Band-Aids. And those Band-Aids mean, you know, that we're, we're finding short-term accommodation in shelters, and, and um, you know, other units to, to house families and individuals who are in need of ho- housing who would otherwise be out on the street. So with that in mind, because uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, we, we talked with Todd White from the board just uh, last week, and he was talking about the McDonald's property and, and the possibility of that community hub, which would actually have uh, affordable housing and a school and a rec center situation. But that's, as he said, years away. And, and that's all well and good. And it sounds like a great plan, especially for the downtown core. But you're worried about what's going to happen this week. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, those those units really can't come soon enough. And, and I think what we're going to continue to see, Bill, is that that list will grow. That 6,200 names will probably go to and migrate to something in the 64, 6,500 range. Uh, until we find uh, vacant units, and, and and that might mean, as you've suggested, that might mean using vacant schools. Although you know there aren't too many out there, but the board is poised to, to go through another merger process in the next uh, year or two. I know that I have two schools in my own area that are on that list, and there are others across the city. It, it may mean uh, you know looking at unique creative solutions to temporarily use some of these buildings in the interim as affordable housing. But to be clear, that some of these schools are being closed because you know, they've reached the point where, where they're, they're, some of their major building components are, you know, decades old as well. And so they, they may or may not be suitable depending on the age of the building and the location. Well, and you've got one of those just around the corner from you, of course, there, the old Red Hill School that uh, I know it's being used by the board as a resource center right mm-hmm. now, but it's seen better days as a building. Absolutely. Many of these, build, many of these buildings were constructed in the 50s and 60s and need, uh, you know, a ton of work. And that's why the board 
uh, to be clear, has put them on their list for possible closure. Chad, uh, good news that the city's got a plan. And uh, as I was saying, you've got at least the federal and provincial governments looking into this right now, and they seem to be listening finally. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's still going to be problematic short term, but at least we know that the, that we've got things in play to try to get this thing fixed. I really appreciate the update on this. Thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me, Bill. That's uh, Chad Collins, of course, the uh, city council for Ward 5 who has spent a good deal of his uh, political career with uh, the public housing portfolio. And it looks like finally, finally, uh, the city is getting some assistance, much-needed assistance from the feds and the province on this issue. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It's a big week for U.S. politics, Uh, not just the usual goings-on, of course, uh, with the the White House, the Donald Trump White House, but the Mueller investigation and a very important election tomorrow, by-election, for a uh, Senate seat. Joining us to talk about all this is Lawrence Martin, a columnist with The Globe and Mail, who is in Washington. Lawrence, good to have you back. Thanks for uh, making the time for us today. Yeah, Bill, it's uh, good to be in uh, Washington. I'm stationed here now uh, permanently uh, for The Globe and Mail, at least until the, the next election. And uh, and of course, the uh, Trump presidency is uh, providing all kinds of uh, fodder for uh, journalists. Uh, this is the most uh, extraordinary and crazy president uh, Americans have ever seen. So, yeah, it's, it's quite a uh, quite a ride down here. Well, the downside is you can only write one column a day, but there's so much to talk about down there. Oh, you could write. Uh, yeah, you could write more than one column a day. There's so much going on. I mean. Uh, the, the latest uh, crisis he's in, uh, you know, uh, the allegations about um, his um, sexual uh, misdemeanors with uh, all kinds of women are, are being uh, brought forward again in the light of, uh, you know, what's happened to other people on Capitol Hill. He, I think he thought, the president thought he'd got that issue behind him by winning the election after all those allegations uh, with the uh, Access Hollywood tape and and others came out, but uh, now uh, women are demanding that uh, you know uh, that uh, that this be looked into uh, with with greater greater force, and uh, so he'll have this issue haunting him as well as the uh, as well as the uh, Russian inquiry, as well as being uh, what he's down to about thirty five percent approval rating in the polls now. So uh, this president has all kinds of uh, all kinds of crises uh, facing him. Let's talk about the Mueller investigation, which has taken a number of different twists and turns over the last couple of weeks, and 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 I guess the uh, the catalyst for the latest uh, incarnation of that is the uh, uh, the admission, of course, by Michael Flynn that he actually uh, did he pled guilty, of course, and said that he did lie to the inquiry about what was going on and about his involvement, uh, but which prompted a, a, a total reversal in, in policy from Trump, who immediately went on Twitter and said, "Well, that's why I fired him." Uh, and and I don't know if if Trump even understands the ramifications of all that, Lawrence, because what that seemed to do is is motivate Mueller to start looking into what happened not during the election but after the inauguration, and said maybe maybe Trump was obstructing justice by doing what he did with Flynn and others at that time. It's it's given a whole different uh, twist to this whole investigation. Yeah, obstruction of justice is one of the uh, key uh, avenues of the uh, of the Mueller inquiry, and. Um, you know, the others are the Russian collusion itself, and if the president knew about that and if he took part in that, uh, that's very uh, serious. And there's a third uh, area of inquiry in the uh, regarding the nature of uh, Mr. Trump's uh, financial arrangements uh, 
with Russia in the past, and uh, and whether there are any sort of blackmail type uh, links that the that the Russians have in regard to that relationship. Uh, in regard to the um, obstruction of justice case, uh, yeah, that ripened uh, last week with, uh, with certainly what we heard uh, with the um, <coughs> with the admission by uh, by Flynn. And uh, because the president had been trying to protect Flynn, he, and, and he had told the FBI director to take it easy on Mike Flynn, and uh, and then we then then we then we find out what the president also knew that that the uh, same Mike Flynn had been lying to the uh, FBI. So it, it seems uh, on the face of it that there's quite a uh, case for the obstruction of justice. But what happened then? What happened then was that the uh, president's lawyer uh, came out and said, uh, John Dowd, and he said, well, you know, you can't, uh, the, the president has uh, legal immunity from, uh, from, <clears throat> from these claims. Um, he said that uh, the president is the chief law enforcement officer, and he has every right to express his view on any case, and therefore cannot be, uh, cannot be, um, you know, accused or convicted of uh, obstruction of justice. And then, you know, some serious uh, legal uh, people came out, uh, like Alan Dershowitz, and, and supported that claim, while others say it, it is nonsense. So uh, we're in a, it, it's in a real uh, legal entanglement uh, uh, in that area. But there's a couple of things to, about that that sparked, uh, I guess, some memories of, of ancient times, uh, going back to the Watergate days. And, and as soon as I heard Dowd make that comment, Lawrence, my first reflection was was the, the Nixon-Frost interviews where, you know, this is years after he was president, of course, and he was being interviewed by, by David Frost. And, you know, there's a great movie by that, by the way, even if you don't see the original interviews, where Nixon admitted that he says if the president does it, it's not against the law. Uh, and that was one of those jaw-dropping moments, uh, not just in that interview, but I think in, in American political history. And, and now you've got the Trump administration basically echoing those same sentiments. Yes, as a matter of fact, that uh, that famous uh, Frost interview with Nixon was alluded to uh, uh, over the over the last few days. Here, the exact uh, Nixon quote was, "Well, when the president does it, that means it is not illegal." Excuse me, the other phone just went off here, and the uh, and that it seems to be what uh, what Mr. Trump is uh, is going back to there in in terms of one of his. Uh, one of his defenses. Uh, he has a lot of other uh, defenses, Bill. There's the, you know, if they come too close, you know, he can uh, he can use presidential pardons, and that is a murky legal area too. I mean, some people say the president can even, you know, pardon himself. He can pardon family members. He can pardon anyone. So, uh, you know, he's got he's got that uh, that stick to wave at people too. He's going to be very hard to uh, to nail the guy down. When we look at what happened in Watergate, and the, I think the, the parallels and the comparisons are inevitable in this situation, Lawrence, what really people need to remember when they look at what's going on with Mueller's investigation is the Watergate investigation took three years before it really got hot and heavy and, and started moving towards impeachment. This has only been a few months, and so those that are getting a little frustrated have to understand that it, it takes time. But but what's happening here is is people are starting to talk. And, of course, you've got Flynn, who's pled guilty to this now, and we're told he is, quote-unquote, cooperating with the investigation. Is he the sort of guy that can name names, uh, not unlike Colson and others did in the Watergate circumstance? Oh, we seem to have lost Lawrence. We hooked up with Lawrence again? We've got him back. Okay, good. 
I, I guess it's the paranoia in me. We start talking about Trump and about impeachment, and all of a sudden the line goes dead. Uh, I guess that ha- you got to be careful about that stuff in Washington, Lawrence. Yeah, one of the aspects of the uh, Mueller inquiry that you have to uh, bear in mind, and it's getting quite serious, Bill, is that, uh, you know, uh, this is the other thing that, that, that the president's trying to do. He's trying to discredit the Mueller inquiry by saying it has a, a Democratic Party bias, a liberal bias. And they're making a headway on that because uh, last week uh, uh, the news came out that one of uh, Mr. Mueller's senior investigators had to uh, resign uh, because uh, because he had showed bias. Uh, people, people that uncovered his emails, uh, you know, ripping into uh, Mr. Trump and leaning toward uh, Hillary Clinton. And uh, there are other people on the Mueller team that have, uh, you know, contributed a lot of money to the uh, Democratic campaign in the past. So the um, Trump people are making big hay out of this. And, uh, you know, if worse comes to worse and, and Trump sees that uh, Mueller is getting really close to finding something really hot uh, against him, then I wouldn't pass, put it past Trump to just disband or shut down the entire inquiry. Which, uh, obviously, again, uh, there's another parallel with Watergate, which uh, Nixon did, of course, with Archibald Cox. Uh, and we don't know yeah. if it's going to go there. Uh, the question I was trying to get, ask you, which just before we got clipped there a second ago, Lawrence, is with, with Flynn and, and Papadopoulos, although you know Trump has characterized Papadopoulos as just a coffee guy, even though we've seen photos of him sitting in security meetings with other high-ranking officials, are they the sorts of people that can name names in this investigation, not unlike what Colson and others did uh, when they started getting inside the White House? Well, I mean, uh, sure. I mean, Flynn has a uh, has an agreement, uh, uh, you know, with the FBI. Um, you know, it's, it's, they're they're going easy on him because he's cooperating with yeah. them. And so he he can he can name names, and uh, so can Papadopoulos. But you know, that this is assuming that uh, that there is uh, ammunition, a lot of ammunition that that they they have to turn over. Now, uh, I mean. Uh, where you get all kinds of conflicting information about uh, the extent of possible collusion with the Russians on on, on what they were doing and and, and uh, getting uh, emails from the Democratic National Committee and whether the Republicans here helped the Russians do that um, and whether Trump might have known about it. I mean, it, it's quite conceivable that uh, that Trump uh, wasn't told about uh, what a lot of his people were doing in connection uh, with the. Uh, with the Russian ties. Uh, on the other hand, you know, the, the, the uh, Trump has said, oh, you know, there's nothing there. there you know, we didn't have any connections at all. And, but, but there's been a, uh, a cavalcade of contacts from uh, Republicans that have come out, uh, senior Republicans, campaign, campaign uh, senior staff with, uh, with the Russians during the campaign. So uh, uh, that is a very, very, um, you know, <laughs> That, that that could be very serious. It might not might not lead to anything. We don't know. Yeah, but when he says that he, because he's changed his story about firing uh, Flynn, says he fired Flynn because Flynn lied about his connections with Russians. So, by definition, does that not mean that Trump knew about Flynn's Russian connections, and that's why he fired him? If if, if he's telling the truth this time. Well, I mean, um, I think uh, we can assume that uh, that Trump. Um, <clears throat> knew about uh, what what Flynn was doing, that he was in contact uh, with the Russians. But uh, uh, in terms of what what Flynn actually told Trump and the timing of it and how that related to the uh, 
firing of uh, FBI Director Comey, um, that's all very murky stuff, too. So, uh, so it's um, there's a long way to go. I think, as you said, you, the the Nixon inquiry uh, went on for for years, and uh, this one could go on for years as well. I mean, uh, we might we might go past the midterm elections before we find out more about this. And whether or not it's ever, as you say, going to gain any traction at all, or if Trump decides to blow this whole thing up, because there's so many he said, they said, and and counterpoints to this. I mean, you know, Trump has denied that he asked Comey to, to back off on the investigation, uh, even though Comey said, yes, he did. But, I mean, now we're hearing stories this week that uh, the Trump also talked to other key officials about backing off on the investigation, uh, including National Intelligence Director Dan Coats, National Security uh, Director Admiral Mike Rogers, and the House Investigative uh, Committee Chair Richard Burr. Uh, all of them uh, apparently are saying no comment, which really only fuels that fire that maybe this is a lot deeper than we thought. Well, that's why I think you had uh, the president's lawyer come out last week, John Dowd, and say, you know, the president has a right to obstruct justice because he knows that uh, that Trump could very well get nailed on, on that very issue. And so, so they're just going to argue that, uh, you know, so what? Yeah, he, he, he put forward his view to people, uh, to law enforcement officers, his view of what was going on in this case, his view of whether so-and-so was innocent or whether so-and-so uh, should not be charged, because as the chief law enforcement officer in the country, he has a right to do that. And, uh, you know, if that step, as I say, doesn't uh, get Trump protected, um, he will probably go as far as to disband the entire uh, inquiry. And then, as I say, as I also said, he can then move to presidential pardons as a as a as a possible protective uh, armor for himself and his family members. So, I don't see uh, if I was a betting man, I would not put money on uh, Mueller being able to topple uh, Trump. Uh, the president has just got too many. Uh, too many factors on his side to, to, to block this guy. Well, there's an interesting comment from uh, one of the Watergate prosecutors from Days Gone By, Richard Beniste, ben- uh, who said that the, it's a totally different circumstance because he says at the end of the day, of course, we know Nixon resigned before he was impeached, but he said at the end of the day, Richard Nixon was found to have some sense of shame, and he says it remains to be seen whether Donald Trump has any sense of shame. And, and that may seem like a flippant comment, but I think it's very germane to this. In other words, Trump doesn't seem to care what people think of him, and he doesn't seem to care what people accuse him of. Yeah, that is a, a very, very salient point. Um, there's a, in fact, there's a book out now, which I just read, called Let Trump Be Trump by uh, two of uh, Trump's advisors, Lewandowski and David Bossy. And you read this book, uh, and... Uh, you know, these are his advisors, so they give a, a pro-Trump uh, take on the whole thing, of course. But what comes through is the guy's uh, iron will and, uh, and, and the toughness of Trump. And if you look at his career, he's, this is a guy who, he, he's never embarrassed, he's never humiliated, he just uh, plunges forward, he, and he just, uh, you know, has a... Is is such a reckless disregard for the truth that that is just stunning. I mean, the speech he made uh, just a few days ago was just riddled with factual errors. He doesn't care, and he doesn't. But he doesn't buckle. I mean, uh, the the guy you know has been through you know bankruptcies and humiliations and everything uh, throughout his career. But he just keeps plunging ahead. Uh, He has. Seemingly, uh, he seemingly very few sensitivities, very few, uh, 
very few vulnerabilities in, in, in an emotional sense. Uh, he, he can take he can take the hits, and of course, he retaliates uh, stronger than any president that we've ever seen with in terms of cheap insults and inaccurate insults and, and calumnies against whoever whoever comes near him. Uh, we got about a minute or so left here. The uh, the big election tomorrow, the by election, of course. Uh, for the Senate seat, the vacant Senate seat. And uh, Roy Moore, of course, who is Trump's candidate, I understand that Trump has now done a robocall uh, message uh, on behalf of Moore. Uh, some are looking at this as a microcosm and almost as a test for Trump's presidency. Are we reading too much into this, Lawrence? Well, I think we are to a, to a certain degree. I mean, uh, this is uh, Alabama. This is uh, not a state that is uh, representative of the uh, of the United States. I mean, I think uh, I think Moore is going to uh, to win this uh, this election handily, despite the accusations uh, against him of uh, pursuing uh, te- teenagers when he was in his thirties, uh, and uh, despite the fact that when you look at the, some of the guy's positions on issues, I mean, he's a total uh, Neanderthal. Um, but Alabama will vote him in, and then. Uh, the Republicans will be embarrassed because they have this uh, uh, alleged teen molester in their Senate ranks, and it will have, of course, uh, revived the whole talk about, look at what our President Trump did himself. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. uh, it, it will make this issue prominent. It'll be a good issue for the Democrats, who've just unloaded a couple of their prominent people because of the sexual harassment charges. Uh, but uh, like all issues, I don't think it's going to last all the way into the uh, into the next campaign or even in the into the uh, into the midterm elections too much. Strange goings on uh, south of the border, and uh, well, Lawrence is down there. Great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much. Uh, enjoy the stay in Washington, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thanks for this, Lawrence. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. Take care, Lawrence Martin. Of course, now the Washington correspondent for the Globe and Mail uh, down on the Beltway. And as he mentioned, no lack of things to write about down there. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.